excited to gather with you this morning for worship. We're going to invite you to stand as we begin our morning together. The Word of God proclaims, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever. So let's sing about that this morning. Root and the Lamb who 
like to. I'd like to welcome you here this morning to the Faith Family Fellowship, and it is my hope, our hope, uh, that you can sing this song wholeheartedly that we just sung, full of such great truth that the Lord Jesus, he is worthy. He is worthy of all honor, all glory, all praise. And so we are here because of him, and a little later uh, in this time, I've, we've got a few announcements to look at, but want to read a few verses from Ephesians 1. Uh, two of them being what we've been memorizing and are wrapping up this morning, uh, but more so why he is worthy, why he is worthy of all honor, all glory, and all praise of what he has done, what he has done from the beginning of time, and what he still is doing, and what he will do as he returns. So a few announcements, a few things we will not meet this evening, uh, but if you're a deacon, there'll be a meeting directly after our time here this morning in the choir room, so want to also make you aware of that, deacons, be a meeting also uh, here coming up in a few weeks in September. Uh, there will be a meeting for everybody who is involved, volunteering, serving in any of our preschool children's or student ministries. We've got just a few things we need to look at and address and some training time that we need to have in September, and so just want to make you aware of that. If you would stick that on your calendar uh, in September, and let me make sure I have the right date, as I tell you. So uh, September 18th, that evening, we'll, we'll have that time together, so would, if you would put that on your, your calendar. And so the week before that, on the 11th, we'll have a business meeting uh, for uh, after, after church just to look at our, our quarterly uh, details, minutes, and those things. Uh, and so that will be the 11th uh, also. There's uh, ESL. We are looking at uh, that ministry returning. would ask you prayerfully to uh, consider whether the Lord would have you to be a part of English as a second language. Let me, English as a second language is what ESL means. Sorry. Uh, they uh, ministry to uh, international people in the area who, uh, who are either here working or schooling, uh, who, are, who are all around us, a ministry that COVID kind of uh, put away for a, for a moment that we're hopefully looking at resuming 
And if you are interested, I uh, want to encourage you to reach out to Dr. Cole uh, about that. And uh, also, we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which means different groups of the convention meet together at different times of the year. And in October, there is a meeting of the state association uh, that will be meeting in uh, Bay Manette, October 15th. And so part of being part of the convention is to send people as messengers from our church to be involved in those different convention happenings. And so if you are a member in good standing uh, with Faith Family Fellowship and would like to go, uh, please let us know. Uh, contact us in the office uh, during, during the week and let us know if, if you would like to go as a representative of Faith Family Fellowship. And uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that some more uh, moving forward. So a few things, a few things going on, a few things I want to encourage you to prayerfully seek how the Lord would have you to be involved. And so we, we've been memorizing, as I mentioned, Ephesians 1 and memorizing verses 7 and 8. They're on the, on the screen there. Uh, so let's, let's go over these and then I'll read, okay? So let's recite these out loud if you would follow with me and let's recite these two verses. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. So the beginning of this passage says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he should be, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of his will, to the praise of his glory, his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. This plan he began before the foundations. And that no, no evil, no, no circumstance, no situation thwarted his good plan and desire to bring about redemption in Christ. That the beloved, that Christ would come and gave his life in order to pay for sin and to right the destruction that sin has brought about in human lives and in God's creation. So that what he is doing is bringing about a restoration, a righting of all things underneath the feet of God. So that as God created all things in order and to be in the manner that he intended, he is restoring that in Christ. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that individually if we have trusted in Christ and we are born again by his grace. And we get to be a part of that corporately as his people that he has called out of sin and darkness to bring about the bringing underneath his feet, bringing in restoration all things, all things on earth. Whether it's in our job, whether it's in our school, whether it's in our neighborhood, no matter what it is, that it is to be brought underneath God in order as God would have it. And so he's got a, a grand plan for us, for his people. 
to do, to be active in, in the entire world, in every aspect of life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you have adopted people. God, you have brought people out of out of the confines of sin and selfishness from the ownership to the devil of death and that you, by your grace, has, have brought people into life to provide forgiveness in your son that we can be with you, part of your family for eternity. And that is not something we have done. We find ourselves, we find ourselves before this of what you have done out of your abundant love. It was according to your will, by the purpose of your will, that it would be to your praise and to your glory alone. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us where we take for granted your grace, where we take for granted what you have done. We think this is so I can have my best life. Forgive us, Lord, for that arrogance, for that presumption that it is for your glory and for your praise that you have called people out of death and sin. It is for your praise and your glory that you have collected us together. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that we can be a part, that we can receive from you such kindness and generosity and grace. And, God, would you help us? Would you help us this morning, Lord? God, would you open our eyes that we would see that in Christ is forgiveness from our trespasses, that in his bloodshed is our redemption, that, that our sin was costly, that it would be done away with. And that for a time you have said that we would experience these riches of your grace this side of heaven, as you have lavished them upon us that we see a fraction of it, that as in a glass dimly we see you and we see what you have done, Lord, would you, would you open our eyes more that we would see more and understand more. We would understand more of your glory, more of your goodness, that we would see more of the mystery of your will that you have brought about, that God, we would see the great plan and, and get a glimpse of the great future you have for your people and for what you're doing. God, would you help us this morning? Would you draw us, God, before you, that we would see you clearly? We would be humbled before you, and that, God, you would be praised and glorified through us this morning. So, God, would you speak to us from your word? Would you draw us to you, Lord, these plans that, that we have looked at this morning, that, God, you would be with them, you would direct them, that, God, the various ministries and groups that meet and gather that, Lord, it would bring you glory and that you would direct our steps there. God, would you lead us and guide us for your glory and for the good of those around us. That, Lord, you would use this church and you'd use these people for the good of others, for the salvation of others, that others would come and see your great and glorious love for your people and would be joined to them. So, Father, would you lead and guide us, and Lord, be glorified through us. We thank you and ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. My good friends, I remind you of that so you'll be nice to me as I try to deliver a message to you today. It's a great joy always to come to your home church and to share God's word as we try to understand the great depth and mystery of God's word. I think we have to be very, very cautious. We have to listen carefully to what the word says to us. Pray, meditate upon the word, and I hope we have some time to do that today. Just grateful for the elders to give me this invitation. If you're visiting, please know I'm not the pastor here, so I'm only here once in a while, so you can look forward to someone qualified to be in this position at some point soon. The, uh, the sermon today is entitled, A Different Gospel. And I am going to connect it somewhat to the sermon I preached two weeks ago about our study of God, our theology of God, and the doctrine that arises from that study. And you will remember that I really stress that it is important that we make our study of God in Scripture and that our doctrines, our beliefs about God should arise from Scripture, primarily if not exclusively. Now, I'll tell you a quick story real quick. I I go to Wisconsin frequently. I've been to Wisconsin 83 times in my ministry. Why? I'm not exactly sure. But there's a church there I've preached at many times. And last time I preached, a fellow came up to me. He said, every time you preach here, you preach from the Old Testament. I said, well, is that right? I said, I'm glad you're keeping track of that, that you let me know what the record is. And uh, uh I said, what do you think about that? And he said, uh, well, can you just teach something from this century, he said? Okay. I said, well, what, what do you recommend? Would you have something in mind? He said, well, how about just start with the New Testament? Okay. Well, I am going to preach from the New Testament. That's good news. Bad news, it is not from this century. But I will... Uh, Try to advance us through what the Lord has to say. There are a lot of scriptures, there are always a lot of scriptures when I teach because the scripture is the power of God spoken forth to us and we need to listen to his word much more than we need to listen to commentary about his word. But I will throw in a few comments now and then if you will permit me. Turn with me to Galatians 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 as our core text today. And I'm going to leave this text and we're going to come back to it numerous times as we talk about the gospel today. Now Paul writes in verse 6, he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Ponder that now for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Serious matter. He goes on, he says, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary, contradictory to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or God, Paul asks? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You ever think about that, that maybe our... Doctrine gets confused because of who we're seeking to please, who we're seeking to accommodate, who we're seeking to find unity and agreement with. Look, this passage clearly, to me, outlines the importance of correct doctrine. But more than that, it it outlines the accurate application of doctrine in the church, in our lives, in our ministry. Now, just some history on this passage Most commentators agree that Paul himself was likely the first person to preach the gospel in Galatia. And he personally founded churches throughout the southern Galatian cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Now Paul wrote this epistle, he wrote this letter to the Galatians because he was trying to counter the numerous false teachers that were present in that region. These false teachers were referred to as Judaizers. And the Judaizers were converted Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They had that right. But with that truth, they also taught that believers must keep the whole law of God. Every stroke, every tittle of the law, including circumcision, to be saved. If you want to read about that, that's, you can read about that in Acts 15. So they, they took the gospel and they added additional requirements to it. Now these additional requirements undermined the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. That is the gospel. That is the ringing doctrine that, that pervades the gospel from beginning to end. Justification. Salvation, renewal, regeneration, conversion by faith alone. So by adding these conditions, they put an undue burden, especially on the Gentile believers who Paul had been called to serve as their apostle. Paul took this as a very, very serious matter. Continuing in Galatians in chapter 3, Paul confronted the heresy directly. And he he doesn't shrink away from using strong language, does he? In verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who charmed you? Who seduced you? Who deluded you? Who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I read that and I wonder if that's a reference to the Judaizers' Jewish heritage. You may remember the Jews were prominent in the trial and crucifixion of our Lord, so much so that at the end of the trial, they were shouting what? Crucify him. Crucify him. 
And it was before their eyes, before the eyes of the Jews, that Jesus was publicly humiliated, beaten, scourged, and murdered. Verse 2, Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the indwelling Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's all he wants to know. Were you converted? Were you brought to life? Were you born again through the works of the law or by faith? What did Paul write in Romans 10? He said, faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word, you can participate, hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Verse 3, are you so foolish, he asked them. Having begun by the Spirit, you now are being perfected by the flesh. That's a hard question. Paul is saying that conversion was started, it was initiated by the Holy Spirit who draws us to God, who convicts this world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the Spirit who leads us into all the truth. He initiated your conversion, but now your conversion is being perfected, completed, finished by the works of the flesh. In other words, the Judaizers were teaching that God's work alone is insufficient for salvation. Man must perfect and complete the salvific work God initiates. This is a stern rebuke that Paul gives. Reminds me of Hebrews 10 where uh, the Lord references the trampling of the Son of God underfoot and insulting the Spirit of grace. And in Hebrews 10, the final warning that the Lord gives there is it is a fearful thing to fall, where? Into the hands of the living God. Paul is addressing this heresy at the highest standard. He's troubled by it. He knows that a lot of horrific things can come out of poor teaching. Rather than gratitude for unmerited grace, the Galatians had come to believe that their works of righteousness under the law were an additional necessity for salvation. They inserted human will and human capacity into God's gospel. And by doing so, they inflated themselves while demeaning the uniquely sufficient work of God. But if man could save himself, why did Jesus have to die on Calvary's cross? As a counselor, I ask a lot of people who come to me for help Why did Jesus have to die? And many just look at me blankly because they don't know. I'm not being critical of them, they just don't know. Paul addressed the question also, also in Galatians. You getting a theme for this epistle? In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. With Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
Verse 21, I do not nullify, I do not abolish the grace of God, Paul says. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If I could achieve salvation or even contribute to my salvation, Christ died needlessly. Through these scriptures, we see that the churches in Galatia had fallen prey to the influence of these false teachers. But realize something, guys. These teachers were actually, many of them were actually part of the church body of Galatia. They were evangelists, preachers, teachers, elders in the churches. And they had taken up a false gospel. And they were permeating the church with these lies. And they were speaking as men who had authority because they did have authority in the structure of the church. The abandonment of the true gospel was swift. Paul expressed his amazement at how quickly the churches had deserted Christ for a different gospel. So note this. The Galatians deserted Christ through incorrect doctrine. They had an incorrect belief about God. Not just about the wording of the gospel, how it's spoken, how it's presented, but to modify the gospel, you have to modify the Lord. And so their incorrect assessment of who God is led to this deception And it led to them quickly deserting Christ. God's word is inextricably knotted to God's character. Please please don't ever forget when you're reading the word, the Lord is speaking directly to your ear and heart. It is his revelation of the very core of his character. To reject scriptural doctrine is to reject God himself. Now, I'm talking about rejecting a rule or an ordinance that some church produced or someone thought would be a good thing to put in the order, worship or whatever it might be, but the scriptural doctrine. What does, this, what does scripture take us to? What conclusion does it lead us to that awakens us to the reality of Christ and the necessity of his death, burial, and resurrection and his work in our lives? So these points of theological study and doctrinal accuracy are not minor secondary issues. I consult with a lot of churches and they're arguing about theology and they say, well, that's a secondary matter. Let's not be in conflict, brothers, over something like that. Really? I think it's a primary matter. They are primary, it's primary to the integrity of the church and the church's biblical health. These issues must not be ignored under the claim of acceptance and unity. Because how can you be unified on something that is not true? Paul also makes it very clear that this different gospel is not really another. What does that mean? 
It means that what Paul is saying is that any doctrine that contradicts the true gospel does not offer a valid alternative. It's not another gospel, not another means unto salvation. It's not a valid choice. Paul was clear, another way does not exist. Their instruction was, in fact, a lie. It was heresy. And Paul was shocked and he was grieved. Can you not hear the grief in this apostle as he addresses his children in the faith, the churches that he planted, the churches he nourished, the churches that he taught? He is grieved for their condition. He's grieved because of their openness to a damning notion. Make no doubt about it, an incorrect gospel is a serious thing. Look, you know me, I repeat everything you already know. I'm nice that way to you. You don't have to look at new stuff. Jesus was specific when he said in John 14, 6, I am what? The way. I am the way. One more time, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. All this other stuff is mindless clutter, it's foolishness. Before God, it has no merit. Jesus also spoke plainly about this matter in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 7, and you know this one, boy, we can quote this one. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So the gate is narrow, it's small, and there's only one entry point, and that is Christ himself. It's not a conclusion, it's not a decision, it's not an action, it is Christ himself. The narrow gate, believe me, is hard to find and it's difficult to pass through. We try to make it easy for people, don't we? Look, I don't want to complicate the gospel. I don't want to make the gospel some onerous process whereby you can't come to the Lord, but I want the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed in all of its accuracy. That gate must be illuminated by Christ. What did Christ say? He said, I am the light of the world. He is the light. In in Revelation, it says that his face, his countenance, is like the sun shining in its strength. He lights that pathway. He shows us that doorway. But this is interesting. In the Greek, the word narrow literally means to press hard against something. So this narrow gate is not like a a one-way street. It's not like a, you know, a narrow hallway. It's like being pressed between two rocks. You ever been to Chattanooga to Rock City? They got a thing there called Fat Man Squeeze. They knew they had to call the paramedics one day to get me through those rocks. It's tight. And you lose things going through that pressed, constricted area. It's a term often used to describe a wine press that extracts the juice from the grape. 
The passageway is so tight it even extracts us. That's right, we can't even take ourselves through the gate. We must become, we must come to the gate as new creatures, transformed and humbled by our knowledge of God and self. Because the the unregenerate person is too full of himself. He is too inflated, prideful, confident in his own goodness to get between those rocks. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he said, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Our love for Christ, his love for us, controls us. In the New King James Version, which I wish we could all go back to and be happy, states that the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. We are under compulsion to act. We cannot stop ourselves. We are controlled or rather compelled to come to Christ in direct opposition to our very nature. Your nature is not compliant. Your nature is not obedient. Your nature is not good. It is not thoughtful of spiritual things. In Isaiah 53, it says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. We're looking for the wide gate by nature. Christ must compel us through this constricted, tiny space. See, God's love not only draws us, it compels. That word in the Greek means to be forcibly constricted. It's not just an encouragement. It's not just, come follow me. It's going to be all right, comfortable. No, he forcibly constricts and moves us carries us through the narrow gate. We are constrained to come to the grace and provision of Christ. The gospel demands an answer, and some say even a choice. Yet to those who are compelled, there is no choice. You've heard, I've said about everything I know to say, so you've heard all these stories before, but the night that I got saved that I gave my life to Christ, I was compelled to come through that gate, I knew two things. I knew I had to make a choice, and I also knew I had no choice. Confusing. Because it's not for the human mind. We didn't create it. It is divine. It is high above us. It is a work that we couldn't even imagine. Jesus still gives yet another illustration in John 10, 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. By the way, the enemy, the thief, the devil... He will use all kinds of people, even believers, to advance his counterfeit gospel. The Lord continues, I came 
that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for his sheep, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. False instruction is so, so so serious that the offending preacher, teacher, or leader is to be accursed, Paul says. That even if the apostles, even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach a contradictory gospel, we are to be cursed, we are to be damned. I, I just wait so you feel embarrassed. It's okay. This is perhaps the reason John, James rather, James wrote the following caution. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Understand, a teacher may stand in the pulpit, may teach a Sunday school class, may teach some other discipleship class, but a teacher also can have a one-to-one encounter with someone to whom he or she is sharing the gospel. And we had better be reverent. We had better be cautious and confident. Cautious and confident, they seem contradictory, but if I'm cautious, I will be confident that I state the gospel biblically. And the best way for me to do that is to show the person the word, not give my opinion about the word. Correct doctrine is a somber Central matter, why? Because eternity hangs in the balance. Salvation comes through the proclamation of truth by way of the true gospel. The gospel proclaims substitutionary atonement. Christ received our penalty, the just for the unjust. You probably know this, but you might need to reconsider it that Christ did not only suffer on a hill called Golgotha. Many sinners had died on a Roman cross. Jesus endured more than the physical suffering of his crucifixion. Understand, he suffered the wrath of the Father on your behalf. The full penalty of the law was imposed upon the Lord rather than upon you who have proclaimed your trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our debt and penalty to God was satisfied through the crucifixion of his only son. That's the doctrine of propitiation. The satisfaction of a debt. Satisfaction had to involve the shedding of blood. God is a God of justice. He could not give universal salvation and be consistent with his character because he gave a law and he gave a penalty for the law. There had to be an atonement paid. 
Look, we must not dare minimize the glory of this act by claiming a role in our salvation. It's blasphemous. The gift is too great, it's too wonderful to comprehend. Listen to the Father's love as he spoke about his suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And you should really read all of Isaiah 53. It's hard to swallow the full context of it on a few verses. But in verse 10, it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord God of heaven, the creator of the earth, the giver of salvation, was pleased to crush his only son. Because he loved those that he knew. He loved those that would be heirs to the kingdom. And he was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would rather render himself as a guilt offering. You know what a guilt offering is, a lamb or goat taken and slaughtered to make atonement for many sins, or the sins of many, I should say. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, Hebrews 9.22. So God consistently answers his law again and again and again, and he makes sure that his justice is upheld, his righteousness is in view and his goodness and mercy is, is exclaimed. Continuing the same verse, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53, as a result of the anguish of his soul, It says in the same chapter in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. So the anguish of the Lord's soul was not only the physical suffering, it was the anguish that he took on himself that belongs to us. He will see it, God will see it, and be satisfied. Propitiation. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Man had nothing to do with God's choice, election to save. Salvation comes through God according to the kind intention of his will. Remember that phrase, kind intention of his will. It says in Romans 2 that the Kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. But what about the will of the Lord? I think Pastor Matthew might have beaten me to this passage. kept trying to get him to stop reading. But Ephesians 1 verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us to adoption. He predetermined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to 
What's the phrase I told you to remember? According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved is Christ, of course. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. <laughs> lavished. It, it, it was far in, in excess, far beyond what was necessary. Grace upon grace. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he proposed in him. That's how we became born again. Later, in Galatians 5, Paul addresses it one more time. He says in verse 7 of Galatians 5, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Having heard the true gospel, Galatians had been running well until they were hindered or intoxicated by false instruction. This lie had prompted rebellion as the people ceased to obey the truth. Turning away from truth is not just theological error. Oh, it can be. I certainly don't understand everything. You can see that by now. You probably don't understand everything in the great mystery of salvation and the working of God's word. But after I have studied and been a good workman, after I've been discipled and had good preaching, and good instruction to know the truth and yet turn away from it is no longer theological error. Not a secondary matter. It is disobedience. It is sin. Paul made certain the Galatians understood that this persuasion was not of him who calls you. The teaching was not of God and Christ. God had not changed, therefore his word could not be altered And God and his word, as I said before, are indivisible. But as false doctrine often does, it delivered a message that spread quickly like leaven throughout the entire church. Why? Likely, the church was engulfed in this lie because they not only undermined the gospel, but their heresy also required the modification of God. What's the real problem? Do I not understand? Or do I not like what I know? If this comes from the God of Scripture, is that the God I want to serve? We redefine God in order to soothe our desires. The Galatians were no different. And this shift in doctrine made them vulnerable to the rapid advancement of heresy that elevates man's perceived capacity to save himself over the sovereign action of God. The larger I get, the smaller the Lord becomes. The smaller my 
concerned with sin, the more likely sin will occur. If I am large, God will surely be minimized. And that theme will run throughout my entire theology. To exchange truth for a lie, the giver of the truth must be amended. God is immutable. He does not change. And his word is enduring. It cannot be taken from, nor can it be added to. So for false teaching to take root, one must reject the veracity of both God's character and God's doctrines in order to fall away to unbelief. Because you can't say God changed his mind, can you? can't say God, as some, some say this today, that God is yet evolving. He's coming up with new things, new revelations for you. No, he's not. No, he's not. It's written down already. So if I don't like the word, I have to change the one who gave me the word so that the word can be modified to fit my version of what this alternate God would be. Sounds a little bit like idolatry. Romans 1.25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, amen. Under the deception of false teaching, the Galatians ceased to honor and worship the God they knew through the Old Testament scrolls and through the effectual calling of the gospel. They denied his truth. They rejected his authority. They accepted a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And who is the creature, folks? It's you. It's me. The one created by the creator. The human heart without regeneration longs to be its own source of wisdom, power, and authority, and our longing to be God makes a different gospel very appealing. This is the gospel of humanism. It glorifies man and it humanizes God. Makes us like God, makes God like us. That's the exchange we hope to make in the midst of this lie that we're sometimes taught. The Judaizers were exalted by their sense of self-righteousness. We keep the law. We are circumcised. We follow the traditions of our Hebrew elders. And they also were exalted by the placement of unrealistic conditions on other people. So they could lord their righteousness over other people. This humanistic gospel requires no cost and it has no authority. It operates without an absolute standard of law. It is a gospel bearing relief and personal pleasure rather than transformation and the pursuit of righteousness. Humanism is a message of personal goodness instead of universal sinfulness. It's a doctrine of uprightness rather than a call to repentance. And ultimately, it is a gospel of death rather than eternal life. I contend, it's just old Ab talking, 
But I contend that all false doctrine is humanism. Heresies titled many different ways, but false teaching always elevates man and diminishes God. <clears throat> Here's a definition of humanism if you want one. I just pulled it off of Google. You can find it. An outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. So I attach prime importance to human matters, not the divine. Humanism stresses the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasizes common human needs, and seeks solely rational ways of solving human problems. That's pragmatism. Sometimes we read the Bible that way. What can I find in the Bible that will tell me practically what to do? What do I do about my wife? What do I do about my husband? What do I do about my children? What do I do about my gluttony, my drunkenness? What do I do about my cursing? No, that's not what the Bible does. It does some of that. But the Bible teaches us the full context of God's character to which we are to aspire. Once we are converted, we begin this process of sanctification becoming increasingly like our Creator, like our Lord and Savior. And as our character changes, guess what changes? Our conduct. All those bad habits you're trying to break, they get less and less powerful when you're transformed. My wife probably tell you I need a little more transformation. You're sanctified twice. You're sanctified at the moment you are converted because you are set apart as God's own possession. You're a joint heir with Jesus to the kingdom of God. But you also are sanctified progressively throughout your life in Christ where you're growing ever closer to the realization of his great and glorious nature, his mind, his manner. Humanism would suggest that human beings like us decide by conscious will to become a Christian. While all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, we are supposedly capable of diagnosing our fallen state. We're supposedly capable of godly sorrow and repentance. And supposedly we are able to actualize faith within an unbelieving heart. Yet we are fallen, depraved sinners. Read all of Romans 1. It's a little more descriptive than Romans 3.23. It gives a little more detail. Read all of Romans 3. It will expand upon your doctrine of man. It's like an indictment that Paul reads to a court. 
this is what this person is guilty of. It's pretty tragic description. But in that condition, I choose to repent and become a Christian. All of this apparently prompts us to accept Christ into our hearts. Really. think about the wording though that word is not in scripture nowhere in scripture does it talk about accepting Christ into your heart can the creature accept the creator how can the thing made say to the one who made him anything talks about in Romans 9 but scripture states that we are a people for God's own possession He possesses us. We do not possess him. Who then is the authority? Who decides our fate and eternity? And who is sovereign upon the throne? Much like the Judaizers, we have established our own conditions and actions of merit that entitle us to God's salvation. And yet we are dead carcasses Incapable of animation except for God who intervenes. If God never moved, we'd still be, as it says in uh, Ezekiel, we'd be squirming in our own blood on the side of the road. Humanism teaches that the primary aim of life is the happiness and satisfaction of man. But the goal of the gospel is the salvation of man to the glory of God. He doesn't even save you because of you. He saves you because of himself. Because he is glorious and his name is to be proclaimed throughout the nations. Humanism places the desires of the human heart above the standards of God. The gospel message emphasizes that there must be a human response to God's call. So you don't become born again just because God is all of these things and at the foundation of the world he predetermined whom he would save. There still has to be an answer given. Yet scripture teaches that God alone is over Sovereign over salvation. So how does the response come? I have to listen to a long passage of scripture. You're welcome. Ephesians 2, 1. You know it, don't you? You know Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't limited. You weren't hampered. You weren't troubled. You weren't less than you should be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're lying in the middle of a forest, dead. How are you going to raise yourself from the dead? You're going to put the paddles on your chest and shock your heart into life? 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So how can we who are dead in our trespasses and sins consciously decide to seek after God and believe? How does a dead person do that? How can a human being under the sway of the world, this is from Scripture, dominated by the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and engulfed by the desires of the flesh and the mind, recognize a need for Christ? How can that be done? How can the human nature, we are children of wrath, elect to be saved? I preach a lot of places. I've never preached in Robertsdale, Alabama. You know why? They knew me as a child of wrath. I grew up in Robertsdale. They ain't no church ever going to have me preach in Robertsdale. And that fellow was not looking for God. I was looking for a good time. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2 begins with perhaps the sweetest words in all of Scripture. But God. Dominated by all these things, lost, dead, etc. But God. We were dead, we were under the power of the adversary, we were in bondage to the flesh and mind. How could one so desperate recognize the necessity for Christ? He could not, she could not. But God, but for God, except for God. The dead live, the persecuted are victorious, and those in bondage are released according to his good and perfect will established where? At the foundation of the world. Let's read it. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy, that's his character. Oh, he is justice, he is righteous, he is pure but he is also rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The doctrine of justification by faith that the Judaizers denied. Grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Not by obeying the Mosaic law, maintaining Hebrew tradition, celebrating feasts and festivals not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Neither can we boast of our decisions, our acceptance of Christ, our obedience to respond to the call of salvation. Because even these decisions, acceptance, and obedience to the call are controlled by God. 
I hope that doesn't discourage you. It should make you really excited. It should make you really thankful. God of the universe thought of you. He illuminated your path. He brought you to the gate. He constrained you through the gate. He saved you out of the kind intention of his will because he loved you. No other reason. You weren't good. You weren't better than anybody else because he loved you. Why is this confrontation important? Why does scripture record it for our instruction? It is because any other spiritual message is in vain. It's useless. There are no other means of reconciliation with God, no forgiveness of sins, no adoption unto eternal life, minus the activity of God. The doctrine of justification by faith is God's sovereign act of grace and not the work of man. I apologize. I'm going to end a little early. It's a, don't be don't be hurt. Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. Paul wrote of our common salvation. Now listen. What does he say? He says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed." To the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also As a result, it is critical. I'm, I'm giving no commentary on that. You can just chew on that one yourself. It's critical to examine and make certain the effectual calling of the gospel. To which gospel have I, have you attached our hope? There's the narrow gate and there's everything else. And there aren't variations and options and there aren't different ways of looking at things. And you can't go to Bible study and say, well, it says this to me, but it says something else to my brother. We may not know what it says, but it says one thing. And we need to be quickening ourselves to find out as thoroughly as we can and as accurately as we can, what is it saying? Not to you or to me, but what is it saying? saying a lot about this great and majestic God. How wonderful indeed. His nature shines through all of these words. Now regarding this, Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy four sixteen. He said, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. 
For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I won't invite you today to make a decision. I will invite you to revisit this word, these passages, and to study them and meditate upon them and pray that the God of salvation would examine you and show you who you are, where you stand, your relationship to him. And by which gate did you come to be a part of this family? Are you here by membership or are you here by transformation? But I will be here. We're going to have some music. We're going to pray together before we go. And I will be here. I think Matthew probably, Pastor Matthew will be here. And I'll stay as long as we need to stay to talk with you about whatever the Lord may be prompting in your heart. But before you can know who you are or what you may be being called to be, You have to have somebody examine scripture and spend time with you to make your effectual calling sure. Well, I pray if we get the music ready to begin and we'll close soon after. Father God, I just turn to you with great praise today, Lord, for the the intensity of your truth. Lord, how many times we have read these words and how many times I personally have read them wrongly. How many times perhaps others have. But God, it is your great and marvelous nature that compels us draws us, that awakens us to the reality of our state and understanding of ourselves in contrast to your holy perfection. Why indeed, God, would you choose any of us? Why, God, would you extend this gospel call? Why, God, do you love us as you do? It is a tremendous mystery as we come to understand truly how unlovable we are, especially before we are converted and even in the early stages of our walk with Christ. Lord, your 
tolerance for us is great. Your patience with us is so, so kind. But Lord, help us not also forget that you are supreme. You are a God of justice. You are sovereign over all matters. You don't just allow things to happen. You are engaged in everything that happens. And let us look upon you, God, in reverence. Yes, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, but it is also your glory, your magnificence, that helps us to see how badly we need you, how fallen we are. And in the end, Lord, there's a great celebration that you would set your eye upon us and take us to yourself, compelled through this gate into eternal life. Father, how can this be? But we do praise you that it is this way. And we thank you indeed who you are. Just pray, God, for our church that we would be certain to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, and that we could find unity in your word, not in any other source but scripture, and that we could go forward collectively seeking after a deeper and more mature understanding of everything that you teach. God, guide this church as we seek you're appointed to come and minister to us as our pastor. Place your hand upon the search committee, God. Place your hand upon the elders. Because what is to come, you have already determined. Help us to trust you with that, Lord. Help us not strive against you, but to surrender ourselves fully purposes. I love you, God. I pray you forgive me for my sins. I pray you forgive me for any errors that I surely have committed today to speaking your word. I pray, God, that you lead us all this enthusiastic pursuit of all that you are and all that you have for us, that we might be truly a distinguished as Moses talked about. Help us, God, I pray. Teach us as we go, Lord, I ask. In Jesus' name.